Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and this is another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. Chris, is there enough snow near you to take Elliot outside in it yet? Yeah, we actually walked around in the snow earlier today, and he was making little footprints. It was so cute. <laughs> it's so funny, Ethan, because last year he got his first snow experience. And he wanted nothing to do with it. Like he didn't want to be outside. He didn't want to touch it. And this year, now that he's two and he's more active and he's more engaging with people, he loves being outside in the snow. He rolls around in it. He picks it up. He tries to build snowballs to throw at people. So yeah, when it snows, I think he might be the only person in the city that's actually happy about it. Man, gonna have to tell him he's not a Southern boy. I'm glad he's <laughs> gonna be used to dealing with this when he's older. He's gonna be the snowball king. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Chris, in yesterday's episode, we got caught up in everything that happened in and surrounding the Cavs win over the Bulls that I forgot to ask our subtexters for their questions for a Hey Chris episode. So I know these usually come out on Tuesday, but have no fear. Chris is here, and we are going to get into your questions right now. So the first one is, this subtexter said, I keep hearing rumors about the Cavs still being interested in Royce O'Neal. Is this true? And if so, how can we facilitate such a transaction? Please tell me we wouldn't have to trade Karras. He seems to be the most productive bench player. No, nah, I would be Karras. Look, I mean, I wrote about this last year at the trade deadline when the Cavs thought that they had a deal in place all with the intention of getting Royce O'Neal. It wasn't a straight-up deal with the Brooklyn Nets. It was a complicated one where the Cavs had to go down the road with a different team, try to acquire a first-round pick, and flip that to Brooklyn in exchange for Royce O'Neal. It didn't happen. Brooklyn hung on to Royce. They wanted to keep him. They like his contract. They like his veteran experience. They like the fact that he can help mentor some of their younger players. But at the same time, like this is a team, and we've talked about this, that has a glut of wings, and it's hard for all of those guys to get consistent minutes. Part of the reason why the Cavs are interested in Royce O'Neal is because he's got playoff experience. He played alongside Donovan Mitchell in Utah. That certainly doesn't hurt. He can play the two, the three, and the four in certain lineups. And he's got a team-friendly contract that's at a low number. So if you look at it from the Cavs' perspective, he checks a lot of the boxes. 
They are interested in Royce. They were interested in him last year at the trade deadline. Nothing has changed that. They have a list of targets. He's one of a few. And from their perspective, because he only makes $9.5 million per year, a theoretical deal can get done with some combination of Isaac Okoro and Ty Jerome or Dean Wade, Ty Jerome. Like that would be the type of framework that the Cavs would be looking at. Maybe even Dean Wade, Damian Jones a two-for-one type deal where the Cavs also toss in some future draft capital. But it certainly wouldn't be Karis LeVert. He makes $15 million. Royce O'Neal only makes nine, unless the Cavs brought in somebody else in that particular deal. But I just get the sense that Royce is somebody that makes a lot of sense from the Cavs' perspective, given the price wouldn't be too difficult for the Cavs to reach and all of the other factors that would make him both an on-court fit and a behind-the-scenes fit. He is Donovan Mitchell's best friend. That certainly doesn't hurt. All right, next question. How do you think the Cavs will be able to carry this offensive flow forward as Darius Garland and Evan Mobley come back? Rotationally, question mark? And I think we've answered this question a good amount of times on this podcast. So I want to ask you... A different question if you feel like you don't have a direct response to the one that was just asked by the subtexter. Well, I don't think it's so much Darius. A lot of people are focusing on the Darius piece of the whole thing because stylistically him with Donovan Mitchell, him playing on the ball more, him facilitating more, and this run has obviously coincided with him being out and like there are less ball-dominant players for the Cavs to deal with during this stretch. But to me, the bigger question is Evan Mobley, because a big part of what the Cavs have been doing over the last 13 games is shooting more threes. And part of the reason why they're shooting more threes is because they're playing more four shooter lineups, because they have more floor spacing, because they have more shooting out there on the court. Evan Mobley is somebody who plays inside the perimeter. Evan Mobley is not the kind of stretch forward that Dean Wade is. He's not the kind of stretch forward that George Niang is. So I think that is a bigger question from the Cavs standpoint. Can they be the prolific three-point shooting team if Evan Mobley, a non-shooter, a non-spacer, is going to get 32 to 36 minutes per night at the expense of some of the other floor spacers and shooters? That's something that is real. That's something that I'm going to be monitoring in the second half of the regular season. So to me, it's not so much Darius. Like stylistically, having Evan Mobley forces the Cavs to play different on the offensive end. And I want to see how they're going to navigate that. Right. And I think that's a good point because obviously Darius and Evan are two different players. They will still want to play the four shooter lineup. And when Evan's back, he will have to take time and that five role. And we'll have to see what that looks like. Right. But they're Um, also going to want to play Evan Mobley and Jared Allen together, just like they always do, just like they always have since drafting Evan with the third overall pick, because they believe it makes their defense elite. They believe that it takes their defense to a completely different level. And the numbers support that. The other question that I wanted to ask based on this question that was asked by the subtexter was, Will the Cavs go back to Wade and Isaac on the bench getting minimal minutes? And how do the Cavs counteract losing the defense that those two bring as well with their minutes being absorbed by other players? Well, 
they're going to gain defensively in a different area with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen together, right? You don't have to be as stout or as aggressive on the perimeter because you have two guys back there protecting the rim, helping. Evan Mobley is one of the premier weak side defenders in the NBA. Those two guys together cover up a lot of mistakes that could theoretically happen on the perimeter. So yeah, you lose some perimeter defense. Yeah, you lose some toughness. Yeah, you lose a little bit of defensive versatility. Some of those matchups now are going to go to Karis LeVert or Donovan Mitchell as opposed to Dean Wade or Isaac Okoro. But it's something that the Cavs are going to have to work through, Ethan. It's something that they're going to have to continue to figure out. It's a lot easier to run your rotation when Dean Wade is in the starting lineup. Now you're putting him on the bench and it's like, okay, do we get him minutes at the expense of George Niang? Do we get George Niang minutes at the expense of Dean Wade? Because they're stylistically similar. Dean's a way better defender. Everybody can understand that. But they theoretically bring some of the same traits that the Cavs like. And then when it comes to Isaac Okoro, it's like, can Karis Levert do some of those things at a high enough level as Isaac? So they're going to get to a point where they're reintroducing two players that are part of the starting lineup, the other 40% of their starting lineup, and both those guys, Ethan, are high-minute guys. They're going to play 32 to 36 minutes. So now, all of a sudden, you're looking at the Cavs being in a situation where it's an eight, nine-man rotation. Everybody understands that that's what it's going to be because that's what J.B. Bickerstaff is most comfortable with, and there's just not going to be the same amount of playing time for Dean Wade, for George Niang, for Isaac Okoro, that there has been during this stretch. And it's just those guys are going to have to understand that that's part of their role. The other thing is, you know, part of the reason why there are a lot of people around the NBA that think the Cavs are going to be aggressive at the trade deadline. And by aggressive, I don't mean that they're going to shake up their roster completely, but take some of their depth that they have, some of the logjam that they have at certain positions and try and take two of those guys and flip them to another team for one. And that, in a way, it remedies the problem a little bit when this team is fully healthy. We have this question up next. Is Ty Jerome a trade piece since CPJ seems to be a cheap and talented backup? Yeah, I mean, I think Ty is somebody that the Cavs would move in the right deal if they need to aggregate some more salary. They would do that. If we're talking about two-for-one deals and you're starting with Dean Wade, that's only $6 million. If you toss in Ty Jerome, or if you toss in Damian Jones, suddenly you're talking about getting an 8 or $9 million player. And the guys available to the Cavs in that kind of scenario are a lot more appealing. That brings Rice O'Neal into the equation. If you use Isaac Okoro instead of Dean Wade, and you toss in one of those two guys, Damian Jones, Ty Jerome, that brings somebody like Dorian Finney-Smith into the equation. So look, the Cavs signed Ty Jerome for a reason. Kobe Altman has had his eyes on Ty Jerome for years. Ty is very close to Donovan Mitchell. They grew up playing basketball together in New York. And the Cavs thought that there was a role for Ty. They like his size. They like his three-point shooting. They like his basketball IQ. They like his ability to run an offense. J.B. Bickerstaff raved about Ty during training camp, said, hey, it's going to be hard to keep him off the floor because there are a lot of good things that he does. 
this injury has taken him off the floor. He hasn't played since the second game of the regular season. So the Cavs aren't looking at it saying, oh, we got to get rid of Ty Jerome. If they don't trade him, they don't trade him. And he's got another year on his contract because he signed a multi-year deal because the Cavs wanted to make that kind of investment in him. And they believe in him and they believe in some of his untapped potential. But if they need his salary to aggregate, I think it's easier for them to make that kind of deal and and sacrifice that kind of depth in the backcourt because they do have Craig Porter Jr., who is currently on a two-way contract but could get his contract converted to a standard NBA deal. And even though he doesn't have as much experience in the NBA as Ty Jerome, even though he doesn't have as many games under his belt, he has shown an ability in certain stretches to be an effective backup. When he's gotten the opportunity, he has looked ready for the moment. He has been effective. And I think with more time and more experience, he's just going to continue to get better and better and better. And I think it allows the Cavs some optionality and flexibility when it comes to this particular trade deadline. Chris, you know why I love these subtexters so much, man? Not because they interact with us so much and get back to us and give us their takes but sometimes they leave a little wiggle room for me to give some interpretation of their questions (laughs) this subtexter simply sent the box score of the utah jazz versus indiana pacers game where the jazz nearly won by 30 points with marketing and colin sexton both scoring over 30 points To me, without any words, this subtexter was asking if the Cavs won the trade for Donovan Mitchell. It's a win-win deal. I, I don't understand why people can't accept that. The Cavs got what they wanted out of the deal, and the Utah Jazz got what they wanted out of the deal. And Donovan Mitchell has been one of the best players in the entire NBA since coming to the Cavs. Who's going to say no to that? He was a starter for the Eastern Conference last year. He was in the MVP conversation. He almost made first team All-NBA. And this year again, he's going to be an All-Star. This year, he is playing great for the Cavs. He is one of the most important players to any team in the entire NBA. That's the kind of impact that he has made for this team. He has taken this team from a play-in type team to a team that has a higher ceiling than that. We're talking about the Cavs. Last year, they were the four seed in the Eastern Conference. They had home court advantage. This year, we're once again talking about them as a second tier team in the Eastern Conference behind Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia. That's a great place to be. And I got news for you, Ethan. If they didn't have Donovan Mitchell, if they still had Colin Sexton, Lowry Markinen, and Ochai Abaji, the Cavs aren't a second tier team in the Eastern Conference. They're a team that is fighting to avoid the play-in tournament. They're a team like the Orlando Magic. You know what I'm saying? So I understand why Utah would be happy with what they're getting from Markinen and Colin Sexton. They should be happy about that. But the Cavs are thrilled with what they have gotten from Donovan Mitchell. Their ceiling is higher with somebody like that. Anytime you have an opportunity to get one of the best players in the NBA, it is going to be costly. You're going to have to give up something of value. You're going to have to give up something that gives you a little bit of pain. That's what it costs. In order for the Los Angeles Clippers a number of years ago to get Paul George, it took them giving up Shea Gilgers Alexander, right? In order for the Indiana Pacers to potentially get Pascal Siakam, 
they may be giving up Bruce Brown, who was one of their most important signings this offseason, who brought championship experience, who brought playoff experience, who has played really, really well for a team that is sixth in the Eastern Conference. But it's like, sometimes that's what it takes to get these deals done. And sometimes both teams can benefit and get what they wanted out of the deal. And I think in this case, both teams have gotten what they wanted out of the deal. And the Cavs are not having any kind of sleepless night because Lowry Markkinen's playing well and Colin Sexton's playing well for the Utah Jazz. Because at the end of the day, they've got Donovan Mitchell. And Chris, last but not least, we mentioned Darius Garland earlier tonight. But this question is... What are your thoughts on Darius as an off-ball player? Because the national narrative seems to be that he needs the ball a lot to be effective, and that's why him and Donovan don't work, quote-unquote, together. But I've always thought he thrived off-ball with other creators like Ricky Rubio before Ricky's injury. What's your take on this, Chris? I just don't understand, Ethan, where this narrative comes from, that Donovan and Darius don't work together. Who is saying that? Where is that coming from? Fans that see Donovan Mitchell score 71 points without Darius Garland, Darius Garland had to pick up the slack when Donovan's hurt. Do I have to do this again? I feel like I always do this. I feel like they need it. It feels like every podcast is the same. It's not even to the subtext. No, he's taking whatever the narrative is that's out there. I think it's every podcast. We got to give it to him on why. Donovan and Darius work. So I'm going to let you take it this time, Chris. This time, huh? <laughs> With Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland on the court together. This year, it's been limited. Darius has been dealing with injuries. Donovan's been dealing with injuries. So it's only been 16 games. It's been less than 400 minutes. Okay? But in those 363 total minutes, with Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland on the court together, the Cavs are outscoring opponents by 9.7 points per 100 possessions. That's good. They have an offensive rating of 114.5. They have a defensive rating of 104.7. So it's like they work based on the other personnel that the Cavs have on this roster. With Max Struess as the starting small forward to space the floor, to create some movement, to give them a legitimate threat at the small forward spot that they didn't have last year when they were using Karis LeVert, Lamar Stevens, Jetty Osman, and Isaac Okoro. It's just different with a starting caliber two-way wing like Max Struess. And then if you're going to play Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland together, obviously there are defensive limitations that those guys have physically. But it works with the other personnel because you have two elite rim protecting bigs that are back there erasing mistakes out on the perimeter. So it's like, yes. There are flaws with them together, but it's all about how you construct the roster around those guys. And if it's going to work in a situation with two undersized guards on the defensive end of the floor, this is the situation where it's going to work. It could probably work in Minnesota, too, because they've got Jaden McDaniels and they've got Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns has played better on the defensive end of the floor. But like this situation with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, it can work. And the numbers support that. And if we go back to last year, Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, once again, it worked. They had a great net rating together with both those guys on the floor. So I don't know how else to explain like their level of effectiveness 
are there times throughout the course of the game or throughout the course of a season where there are stylistic conflicts because they both thrive in the pick and roll, because they both need the ball in their hands, because they're both high volume scorers? Yeah, sure. There are times, but like the moments of wonkiness, that's not the norm. Like the norm is with both those guys on the court together the Cavs are an elite basketball team. I think they just need more time together to continue to work through some things, to continue to get comfortable, especially in this new stylistic system. And there's no reason why Darius, being the shooter that he is, and being as capable as he is off the ball, running off of screens, creating havoc, studying Steph Curry tape and stuff like that, Like, there's no reason why he can't be better and better and better in that particular role when he gets more reps and more experience in that particular role. All right, Chris, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to discuss the potential trade with the Indiana Pacers, Toronto Raptors, and Pascal Siakam. But before then, become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast, and the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. All right, we're back. Chris, this potential trade on a team with the Indiana Pacers that are as hot as can be. Pascal Siakam, who still has a lot to give in the NBA and is a highly sought-after player in this year's trade deadline, there was a report that came out today that the Raptors and Pacers are active in talks on a trade centered around the two-time All-Star for a package that includes three first-round picks. Chris, <laughs> this could be a shakeup in the Eastern Conference on a team that has already been giving some people and teams a shakedown. How do you feel about the potential for this trade and what it could mean for the Eastern Conference? Well, here's the thing, Ethan. You've got teams beyond the top three in the Eastern Conference that are just battling for positioning. 
battling to avoid the play-in tournament, battling to be one of the top six seeds in the Eastern Conference. We've talked about how competitive that's going to be. We've talked about the second half of the season, the playoff push, and what could potentially separate those teams. It could be the smallest thing. But at the end of the day, like this would be a situation where another one of those teams that the Cavs are competing with for that spot, that same type of spot, is all of a sudden making a move to improve the roster. And that is going to have a trickle-down effect on the Cavs' chances of being one of the top six teams in the Eastern Conference. You know, you never want to say, well, one move is going to prevent the Cavs from reaching their goals or something along those lines. But it's like every move that these other teams make is going to have some kind of effect on the Cavs. And to see both of those teams, the New York Knicks by getting OG Ananobi, a big piece ahead of the trade deadline, and the Indiana Pacers getting another big piece, somebody who seems to fit exactly what it is they are looking for from that particular position. Somebody with playoff experience, somebody who can play inside and outside, somebody who can start at the forward spot, but also finish games as a small ball five from time to time, giving some lineup versatility. This is something that is going to have a trickle-down effect to the Cavs and their chances of staying in the top six in the Eastern Conference. So when you see two teams right around you improving their roster, you start to say, okay, what is it that we can do to improve our chances as well? The Cavs are always aggressive. That's how this front office operates. But it's now something that it makes it less likely that the Cavs just stand pat at the trade deadline to me. And Chris, just for fans that may not be aware of how close the Eastern Conference is. You got Boston at one, Milwaukee at two, Philadelphia at three, Cleveland at four, Miami at five, Indiana at six, New York at seven, and Orlando at eight. The Cavs are only four games back from second place Milwaukee. The Miami Heat are also just four games back. In the fifth seed, the Pacers are only five games back and are one game behind the Heat and the Cavs. So you think about how close this race is right now. We're not even at the halfway point. We're not even at the trade deadline. All of these things need to be accounted for. And you think about what Pascal Siakam can bring. And you mentioned it like It's another body that you have to think about. The pick and roll with Tyrese Halliburton would be nasty. It seems like the Indiana Pacers are extremely hungry this season. Based on what we've seen thus far, Tyrese Halliburton is going to be coming back from injury. All of those things taken into account. It doesn't feel like this Indiana Pacers team is going anywhere without Pascal Siakam. But adding him into the mix is just a whole nother component that not only the Cavs, but all the teams in the Eastern Conference have to look out for. Yeah, we've talked about it. I mean, this is an Indiana team that for all of their problems defensively, and they are wretched on the defensive end of the floor. It's a historically great offense when Tyrese Halliburton is healthy. He's the engine of that offense. And when he's driving that offense, it is a very, very formidable team. And Indiana needs somebody like Pascal Siakam. When you start thinking about some of what their minutes have been at the power forward spot, it's been some combination of Obi Toppin and Jalen Smith, 
Aaron Neesmith every now and then plays some small ball power forward. I guess they could mix in Isaiah Jackson as well. Pascal Siakam is an all-star caliber player that would fit in around those guys. And the other thing is like Pascal doesn't have to be the guy. You know what I mean? Like this can still be Tyrese Halliburton's team. It can still be Tyrese Halliburton, Miles Turner running pick and roll, pick and pop. And I think Pascal's the kind of guy who, you know, he has played a variety of roles with Toronto throughout the course of his career. And it's not like some big alpha dog who's going to come in and disrupt things that the Indiana Pacers are building. It's not somebody who's going to step in there and start taking touches away from Tyrese Halliburton or changing the style that the Indiana Pacers want to play. I think he would be a good fit behind the scenes. I think he would be a good fit on the court. And it just gives Indiana another weapon with big game experience, another outlet for scoring, and a little bit more reliability, certainly, than what they've been using at the power forward spot. It is no secret that the Pacers have been trying to make this kind of move since last year, basically. They feel like they have the assets. They feel like they have the young talent that other teams are going to be attracted to. And, you know, if you make a list of the quote unquote available players at the trade deadline, Pascal Siakam is probably one of the top five most coveted. He's also a Cavs killer, by the way. That's something to take into account here. Since LeBron James left the Cavs, Pascal Siakam has just tormented them. I think every single game that he has played against the Cavs since LeBron James left, even a stretch that kind of coincides with the Cavs rebuilding, but also recently as well. Like, I think he's had one game of single-digit scoring night against the Cavs post-LeBron. So he's somebody who the Cavs have had problems with. Maybe that's a little bit different in a seven-game series with Evan Mobley if they hang on to Dean Wade, but it's a big pickup for the Pacers if it happens. Listen, (laughs) these numbers are insane. (laughs) Insane. So Pascal Siakam against the Cavs. In his last game against the Cavs, he had 36 points on January 1st. In 2022, he had 35 points. Also in 2022, he had 26 points. In 2019, he had 33 points. In 2021, he had 25. 2023, 25. 2022, 24. Like, hold on. To put it like this, Ethan, over the last nine games playing against the Cavs, Pascal's lowest scoring output is 18 points. And mixed in there are some 20-point nights, high 20s, and even into the 30s. Like, stylistically, he's been problematic for the Cavs. The only time in the last four years that he's had under 10 points scoring was in 2021 against the Cavs. Everything else has been 10 points and above, and the lowest he's had outside of that game in March 21st, 2021 against the Cavs is 18 points. And he had that twice, and everything else is like 23 and above. It is wow. I didn't know he was a Cavs killer, but that makes this even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for them. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if you're a team like Indiana, right? Obviously, you're trying to find guys that can help you in matchups with Milwaukee Bucks, the Boston Celtics, the 76ers, the Cavs, the Heat, the Pacers. You know, Pascal's the kind of guy that can hang against as best he can against Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And it just makes them a more complete team. Tobias Harris, even stylistically. Yeah, and... That doesn't even talk about the team that the Cavs have to match up against 
on Wednesday. We've talked about Cleveland having a fairly easy last 12 games, and on Wednesday, they'll have a tougher test. Do you think this is a good sign of how large or small the gap is between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Cleveland Cavaliers? No, I mean, I don't think this is really a barometer-type game. I don't think this is a measuring stick-type game. There's more appeal to it. I think there's going to be more intensity inside Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. It's a nationally televised game. It's two teams in the East that consider themselves contenders. But this version of the Cavs, it doesn't really give you a true gauge of of who they are and what they can be because they're missing 40% of their expected starting lineup. So, yeah, I mean, there's part of me that is going to be looking at this game and is going to be interested to see how this version of the Cavs playing this style will match up against the Bucs. But I want to see these teams play against each other at full strength before I really start making some kind of determination about how they match up or trying to project how they would match up in a seven-game series. And for those who don't know, the Cavs play the Bucks three times before January is over. And so I want to ask you, Chris, realistically, over these three games against the Bucks, taking into account that two of them are going to be in Milwaukee as part of a back-to-back, how do you think they could fare record-wise? Milwaukee's a very difficult place to play. I think it depends what version of Milwaukee shows up and, like, how seriously they take this matchup against the Cavs. But at home, they're 19-4. and It's a very, very difficult place to play. Obviously, if the Cavs win two of the three, they should be doing cartwheels in the locker room, right? If this version of the Cavs finds a way to get two of three against the Bucs, they should be doing cartwheels in the locker room. But I just, I just think this version of the Cavs missing what they're missing, it's hard for me to expect that. It's hard for me to demand that from the Cavs. So it just feels like one and two or 0 and three. They just played the Bucks recently, played well in stretches in that game against Milwaukee, but ultimately they lost. And, you know, the reason why they lost is pretty obvious. Giannis was terrific in that game and Dame was awesome as well. And if both Giannis and Dame play at the level that they played at, just like they did in the most recent meeting between the two teams, it's going to be hard for this version of the Cavs down Evan Mobley and down Darius Garland to keep up. And Chris, let's just say that theoretically Darius Garland comes back by the end of the month and is able to play in one of the three games against the Bucks. I want to say this first. I am somebody who has been very optimistic this season with the Cavs record and seeing where they can get prediction wise. And I also agree with you that I think one and two is probably realistically the best thing that could happen in the next three games against the Bucks. But I want to get your take on how Darius's return could impact this kind of game, especially if he's not at full game speed and still needs to like get those reps in, in games and stuff. I mean, with him in the lineup, the Cavs are going to be more explosive. They're going to be more formidable. They're going to have a chance to keep pace with the Bucs on the offensive end. At the same time, it gives Milwaukee somebody, not to attack, because I think that's unfair to Darius, but somebody that they could potentially physically overmatch. Let's put it that way. So there's a little bit of give and take there, right? 
and it all depends on the style of game that the two teams want to engage in. I just think at the end of the day, like even if the Cavs were at full strength, I think there's a level that Milwaukee can reach that the Cavs haven't shown that they can consistently reach. And it doesn't mean that during the regular season, every team is going to bring their A game on every single night, right? But if Milwaukee plays its A game, I just think there's a different ceiling attached to that roster than the one attached to the Cavs. There's a reason why I see the Cavs as part of that second tier alongside Indiana, Miami, the New York Knicks. I just have to see it more consistently from the Cavs that they can reach the top level that I think Milwaukee, Boston, and Philadelphia, one, have shown, and two, it would appear based on the talent level that they have, are able to do more consistently than the Cavs are. All right, Chris. Last question for today. When it comes to the Cavs' defensive assignments, I'm thinking Isaac Okoro will guard Damian Lillard, Dean Wade will be on Chris Middleton, and Jared Allen will be on Giannis Antetokounmpo. How do you feel about these matchups on paper? Well, Jared is somebody who, you know, nobody stops Giannis, obviously. But Jared is somebody who can at least move his feet, use his length, bother Giannis a little bit, wall off the paint, make it difficult on him to score the ball the way that he's accustomed to. Of all the guys that the Cavs have to throw on Giannis, that's obviously the best option that they have. And that's a pretty good option for other teams, too. The thing that they have to worry about, I think, is that if they start focusing too much attention on Giannis or too much attention on Dame, Milwaukee's got capable other guys. And in the most recent meeting between the two teams, Malik Beasley just heated up from downtown. He made five threes. He scored 15 points that night. He was a plus 12 overall. And part of that is because of the attention that Dame usually commands and the attention that Giannis usually commands. So it's almost like a pick-your-poison type thing. Do you want to make Giannis a scorer, or are you going to send an extra body at him and say that it's up to you, Malik Beasley, it's up to you, Pat Connaughton, and it's up to you, Brooke Lopez, it's up to you, Chris Middleton? So I think how they approach it will be interesting. And the same thing when it comes to Damian Lillard. But I do think that those are probably the matchups that is going to be. There's going to be a bunch of cross-matching, because there always is. There's going to be a bunch of switching because there always is. But like from a personnel standpoint, I think the Cavs have guys that can at the very least bother Milwaukee's two stars and make it difficult on them to score as efficiently as what they're used to and what they're capable of. All right, Chris, we got into a lot today. But that'll wrap up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. But remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast, it's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe, we out.